from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. In mid-September, the outdoor clothing company Patagonia posted a short video on Instagram. It's about 10 seconds long, and it features founder Yvonne Chouinau writing on a piece of paper. The sentence he's writing reads, Earth is now our only shareholder. And then his voice comes in. Not a lot of people understand how serious we are about saving this planet. I'm dead serious. This fall, Yvonne Chouinau did something unprecedented. He entirely gave away his company, and he gave it away to an entity to invest all profits into climate solutions. Most billionaires donate tiny slivers of their wealth while they're still living, but not the founder of Patagonia. He says his two adult children don't want the money, and he and his wife don't need it. So they're giving away the $3 billion company he founded a half century ago. The move will funnel $100 million a year into climate investments. It will make Patagonia a powerful force in climate philanthropy, and it's established a new model for corporate sustainability. Guys, the biggest question here is, do others follow in these footsteps? It is a fascinating experiment, extraordinary. We're not all the way done with 2022 yet, but I think this is the climate fashion news of the year. This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. This week, corporate sustainability from the perspective of the fashion industry. We'll have a conversation on Patagonia's move to turn the company into a corporate vehicle for climate solutions, and then a look at fashion law. Is better labeling the key to cleaning up one of the dirtiest industries on Earth? Faced with the surge of distributed energy resources, electric cars, and grid constraints, utilities are ramping up dynamic pricing. But the results are mixed. If utilities don't implement rates correctly or transparently, it could be a major roadblock for the energy transition and a headache for customers. On June 13th, Latitude Media and GridX will host a frontier forum to examine the imperative of good rate design and the consequences of getting it wrong. Register at the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com events. Clean energy and climate tech are policy-driven industries, and anyone working in this field touches local, state, and federal policy in a very real way. And that's why you should be listening to Political Climate, a podcast from Latitude Media and Boundary Stone Partners that delivers an insider's view on climate policy and politics. Every other week, co-hosts Julia Piper, Emily Dominich, and Brandon Hurlbuck cover the nuances of government funding, regulations, backroom negotiations, and the election, of course. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations and strong opinions from voices across the political spectrum. Listen at latitudemedia.com or subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. So we've seen a lot of different flavors of climate investments from corporations or rich people in recent years. There's your standard procurement. We're a company and we plan to buy X amount of renewables or buy X number of carbon credits by a certain year. There's corporate venture capital, global oil companies or utilities investing in clean energy or carbon removal companies. There's the public market's ESG play. This is an asset manager like BlackRock saying it will add a climate lens to its investments. And then there are billionaires like Elon Musk setting aside prize money for carbon capture, or Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates putting a bit of their personal wealth into climate causes. The recent move from Patagonia's founder to donate the entire company to a nonprofit with the sole purpose of investing in climate solutions that's a new one. The co-hosts over at our sustainable fashion podcast, Hot Buttons, have been digging into the news. And this week, we're featuring a conversation they recently had breaking it down. And then in the second half of the show, we're going to have a complimentary conversation featuring a fashion law expert on the legal tools around labeling for cleaning up the apparel industry. 
Here is Christina Binkley teeing up the Patagonia conversation with her Hot Buttons co-hosts Rachel Kibbe and Sheila Kim Parker. Uh, one announcement overshadowed everything else, by the way. We are, we've are we got to talk about Patagonia founder um, Yvonne Chouinard said he's going to give away the company. Um, that's right. He's giving away the company, basically transferring his family's ownership to a to two entities. One is a nonprofit and the other is a special trust designed specifically to fight climate change. And um, his reason was simple. He didn't want to sell or go public. He doesn't trust the public markets to to do what he wants to do um, with climate change and with his company. So he and his bankers came up with this totally novel structure that lets the company devote its profits to fighting climate change rather than lining shareholder pockets. I read these art, several articles about this carefully, trying to understand what the structure is. Um, but essentially... It's an ongoing company, and it will reinvest in itself to keep going. But anything in excess of that, in terms of profits, will go to causes to fight climate change. And those investments and expenditures will be overseen by this trust that he's formed. So, um, super interesting. What do you guys yeah, think? so exciting. I mean... Uh- Obviously, I had to sort of look into it a little bit before I totally celebrated it. And there's already been some criticism, but I just, I, I still am, am looking to poke holes in this. And I really can't, given the structure that <laughs> they've chosen in the society we live in. Listen, Rachel, I loved your I loved your measured tweets, by the way. Did you like my you measured say, tweets? <laughs> you would say, if this is exactly how it appears and sounds, <laughs> I will give my qualified <laughs> endorsement have- of this move. <laughs> We all have reason to be cynical. Who have right? I become? Well, I used to be such a grassroots activist, and now <laughs> I know it's because you're a grassroots activist. Maybe that that's you know and, to be and I've been right? let down. I mean, you know, we've all been let down, and we've had to go back. But listen, Patagonia, founded in 1973 by a rock climber to make better climbing gear for other rock climbers, um, and by the 90s, he had already avoided near bankruptcy. They'd had ups and downs. And he came out on top with a billion-dollar company. And this is a man who, to this day, does not use a cell phone or email. He managed the company loosely, apparently, from what I've read from the articles that have been published over the last few weeks and going back over the last few years from what I could find. This is a guy who also disappears for months on end to be in the wilderness and continues to believe that the only good things that happen in society are on a local level. But he is also a founder who is conflictedly really, really good at business, like really good at business. And in 2005, he released an updated memoir titled Let My People Go Surfing, in which in the introduction he writes, I've been a businessman for almost 60 years. It is as difficult for me to say those words as it is for someone to admit being an alcoholic or a lawyer. I have never respected the profession. Wow. It's a a harsh blow to lawyers. (laughs) And alcoholics. (laughs) (laughs) And then in 1991, he communicates to his employees that they are making outdoor-like clothing for posers. So, so this is a guy who is, he's, he's never shied away from criticizing himself, his role in business, and, and, and then pivoting to make changes to what he views as problematic in his company. In fact, after he made that statement to, <laughs> that poser statement to his employees, he switched from giving 10% of their profits to grassroots environmental organizations to 
what is now fairly common, but was fairly revolutionary at the time, 1% of their total sales to as an earth tax to, to um, environmental causes. Um, so he's sort of always tried to walk the walk in the confines of a business that has um, been criticized for growing and being Patagucci and being uh, elitist and making yeah. the outdoors something that's uh, exclusionary of all people and only meant for the wealthy. I don't think this is uh, something that he is unaware of. If any company was going to do this, it was going to be Patagonia and it was going to be him. I mean, I think, honestly, we're not all the way done with 2022 yet, but I think this is the climate fashion news of the year. Um, yeah, for sure. And it's an unbelievable move. It's an extraordinary move. And I think it hit a nerve, not just for all the obvious kind of climate and sustainability goals and how exciting that is, but it also hits on a nerve that kind of the current of conversation we have around what's the role of the ultra wealthy and what's mm -hmm. the role of billionaires yes. in our society. Um, and I think part of the shock is that this goes against the grain of the idea that most of us have, which is that most of us are self-interested. Mm -hmm. And given the choice between accumulation of wealth, you're going to choose that over self-sacrifice. And the idea that someone would give up all those billions seems unheard and not, of. And not only for themselves, for their family. That really struck me is that he's got children and grandchildren who are part of this too. Who are now on salary. Well, look, first of all, I don't think that they're not—I think they're doing just fine. I mean, first of all, they've accumulated a lot of wealth um, uh, over the years, so I think um, everyone's making wild guesses now, but I think they'll be just fine. Um, and as Rachel mentioned, um, some of them are on salary still, um, so they do still have that kind of connection to the company. But still, it is unprecedented that somebody would turn away from that amount of wealth that they have a rightful claim over. Yeah, I would also say it's interesting that I, I think that it's an opportunity for all of us to learn about governance structures as well. Um, some people have said, oh, well, he's avoiding $700 million in taxes by transitioning $3 billion to a 501c4. Um, well, first of all, ridiculous argument. that was a Bloomberg headline. That, this is how governance ridiculous. structures work, by the way. Like, you can, you, the money has to go somewhere. It has to go in a governance structure. Um would you rather him pay $700 million in federal taxes right now, a lot of which are going to go to the military-industrial complex, or would you like forever after for the company to put their profits into causes for the planet? First of all, well, that's my also, response to that. Yeah. And also, he is paying more than that in taxes. Oh, Blo yeah. I, I, Bloomberg, I don't, even, I don't know who wrote that for them, but they I obviously know. didn't even read. It was just a headline, into, and yeah. then the article didn't even talk about it, but I, yeah. I saw tweets about it, and I was just like, ugh. And then Maybe. also, he's going to be a 501c4, which mm -hmm. is not only, uh, it, which is different than the traditional 501c3 structure that most nonprofits are, which means they're also going to be able to lobby and give money to political causes, which, by the right. way, our friends on the other side of the tracks are also doing. So this is like, this is not unique to uh, liberal causes. This has been happening in um, far right causes as well. Billionaires are also putting their money into similar corporate structures. So I think this is sort of a new governance structure that's going to benefit, uh, if you are aligned with these causes, benefit those causes. I think part of it is conversation is stimulated by the fact that the mechanics are actually are unknown. Um, how these how will these trusts operate? How will they make their decisions? And mm -hmm. um, what is the oversight um, over these trusts? There is no reason to believe that um, there's anything but good intention, um, and it's a radical, innovative move. 
And I think at this moment of time, with the information that we have, we have a lot of cause to be encouraged and excited and really applaud. I actually t- told my son, I turned to him when I was reading about that, and I said, I think that, um, you know, prepare yourself for getting Patagonia for Christmas. Because I looked at that and thought, as I'm trying to make good consumption decisions, yeah. um, I I have to sort of put my faith in brands, not only that are doing good on the sustainability of the impact of what they're producing, but using their profits well. And Patagonia just gave me confidence that they're yeah. doing it on both ends. What's, it's so hilarious that his intention is to slow growth. And actually, I think he's going to, there are going to be more, more posers right. than ever wearing He's going to be so upset in his cabin in Wyoming. <laughs> ah, this isn't what I wanted. All these posers buying my clothes. <laughs> well, at least he finally got off the Forbes billionaire list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank heavens. I mean, one of my girlfriends said, now I want to work at Patagonia. I actually, yeah. I do think that they built an enormous amount of brand equity. Yeah. So they've, they've yeah. earned uh, now an even more loyal and passionate consumer following. And mm-hmm. honestly, this is probably very, very helpful for recruiting. Well, there, there is a beacon for you. That's the beacon of all beacons of hope there. Mark your calendars for June 13th at noon Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and GridX will host a live, interactive discussion on implementing modern utility rates. Dynamic rates are vital for motivating customers to electrify, adopt DERs, and embrace demand flexibility. Utility rates could make or break the energy transition. So how do we do it right? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, GridX CCO Scott Ingstrom, and economist Ahmad Faruqi for an in-depth discussion on the future of rates on June 13th. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. I'm Julia Piper. I'm Brandon Hurlbut. And I'm Emily Dominich. A little over a year ago, political climate took a break so we could focus on the groundwork of implementing America's biggest ever climate bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. I'm excited to say political climate is back. And I'll be joined by my two co-hosts to riff on the top political stories and insider scoops from state houses to the halls of Congress to regulatory agencies and even international climate talks. We'll explain how those developments are driving industry decisions today. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations. And to learn about how energy and climate policy is shaped within both political parties from the people who have actually helped shape it. So join me, Brandon and Emily, every other week, starting in April, for fresh episodes of Political Climate. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Patagonia is an outlier in the corporate world, but it's particularly unique in the apparel world, where lots of companies pump out as many cheap, low-quality products as possible from suppliers who use mostly coal to run their factories. The fashion industry is one of the most polluting industries in the world. It makes up 10% of global carbon emissions. Patagonia is explicitly working on cleaning up its supply chain and then sharing information on where it gets materials to make clothing and gear. So what would it take to make tracking the impact of our clothing easier? The Hot Buttons co-host recently brought on Bettina Baumgarten, a fashion law expert who's been exploring the legal tools for bringing transparency to apparel. As we think about how to broaden the efforts from brands like Patagonia, Bettina offers a helpful framework for policy and law. Okay, let's bring on Bettina. Welcome to Hot Buttons, Bettina. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Not as excited as we are to have you. (laughs) I have to say, I totally love your bio. It says it all in a couple of sentences. Quote, 
after 15 years as a civil defense litigator and almost 10 years as a professional fashion stylist, I merged my experience through my graduate work at Fordham's Fashion Law Institute and then served as of counsel for The Real Real. Today, you're consulting in the industry. And um, it mentions that you had the honor of dressing three Oscar nominees, one of whom won the Oscar in 2016 for Best Picture. I think it was Spotlight, Correct. Right? Okay. So um, that's a lot, but what are you doing now? Well, the consulting work that I have commenced is really focused on helping organizations in the fashion industry hone in on how to promote circularity and transparency and to really focus on how we can tackle a lot of the issues of overproduction in the industry through Mm -hmm. upcycling or otherwise, and really addressing resale as a waste solution. Wow. That's, That's a lot actually. Well, you know, I think on, on some level it really is. I think, you know, in, in looking at a lot of the legislation that's emerged, I think the ones that succeed are the ones that really hone in on the root of the problem as opposed to addressing it midstream. And I think that there is a lot of solutions in kind of looking backwards as opposed to always looking forward. You know, new problems don't always require new solutions. I think in large part, we can start at the fundamentals, um, sort of like Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music, let's start at the very beginning, right? You can't write a song until you know the notes. Same same yeah. sort of thing. And we do know the notes, right? They've just gotten pretty scrambled. You've written a fascinating piece on labeling and transparency called Tag Your It, How Amending Garment Labeling Requirements is a First Step Toward Transparency in the Fashion Industry. And I started to read it online and I got in a little ways and thought, oh, no, 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 I got to print it out. I need my highlighter. I need my... <laughs> Little notes in the margins. I did the same thing. I took all did the you? notes. I, when we, when, when Bettina and I connected about it, I showed her. I was like, I've been taking notes. <laughs> I'm really flattered. Them. I thought really it would just be a great piece to induce sleep for people. So I'm thrilled that no, you, know, no, no. you were so <laughs> Not for people like us. These are big topics. There's a lot of fixing that needs to be done. We are super concerned about this here at Hot Buttons. Um, I want to just dive right in. Bettina, first of all, you're a pioneer, one of a handful of people who are pioneering something called fashion law, which literally did not exist 15 years ago. So, Bettina, can you give us a sense of what fashion law encompasses and why it's important to have lawyers who specialize in it? Absolutely. You know, I think fashion has always been viewed as being very frivolous and superficial and really lacking substance. But it's really hard to view a $3 trillion industry as lacking substance when it's such a dirty <laughs> business. You know, right. and and I think just from a fundamental perspective, you know, consider a white t-shirt, the most basic item in anybody's closet, women, men alike. And when you think about it, you know, the logo on it is is governed by IP law. Anything that goes into the manufacturing sourcing of the materials, its fabrication triggers international law and tariff regulations. It triggers employment law and labor law in how and where and under what set of circumstances and conditions laborers are working. Any part of the supply chain is governed by contract law. If you label the materials as organic, you're triggering FDA statutes. I mean, the label itself is governed by federal law, the Textile Product Identification Act, which I talk about in my paper. And if there's words on it, you've triggered the First Amendment. So it really traverses every single area of law. And that really is what fashion law is. It's it's really 
encompasses every area of law that touches the fashion industry. And I think it's important for this area to be recognized and, and why I've specialized in it is because unless you really understand the, the landscape of the fashion industry, it's really hard to apply the law in a way that makes sense in the reality of what is going on in the fashion industry. As a reporter, I've covered a number of different industries, casinos, real estate. I've covered politics. But in my time covering the fashion industry, I've said repeatedly to myself, this is the most complicated industry I've ever covered. Okay, so Bettina, we are, as we said a few minutes ago, dying to talk to you about this um, article that you wrote. It was in the Notre Dame Journal of Law called Tag You Are It, How Amending Garment Labeling Requirements is a First Step Toward Transparency in the Fashion Industry. I, I think we all felt upon reading this thing, which, by the way, was an entertaining read. You actually used an anecdotal lead, which is one writer to another, bravo. You make a very convincing and, um, in places, shocking case for um, the need to update labeling standards in the U.S. Rachel actually brought you and this to our attention. And First I th- of all, just a fan of... <laughs> Moment. Just a, just a fan. Oh my God. Um, take, uh, take a back seat to okay. me being fangirls of you guys. <laughs> okay. Okay. I mean, this is how you sort of got on my radar. You forwarded me this paper you had written. And I'm like, let me take a look at this because, you know, le- legal papers aren't something I generally read in my free time. And I found it so interesting. First of all, Bettina is a great writer. And I think that's really important because um, to establish policy, um, you have to make it um, comprehensive and comprehensible to um, people who aren't lawyers. Clearly, I'm not and one. that rarely happens. And it rarely happens. Um, yeah. And I mean, obviously, this is a topic of interest to me. But um, when we think about sustainability and fashion policy in the U.S., it's sort of a blank slate. Um, so... Um, there's so much to consider. It's almost mind-boggling. Um, everything from fair labor practices to climate impact disclosures to establishing circularity and textile waste management measures. We we have a lot a lot to get done. And and your paper sort of established this way to that doesn't recreate the wheel and is hiding in plain, plain sight, which is to potentially update those little labels that all of us see in our clothing to establish. Increased transparency and accountability around uh, our apparel, which is really what all of us uh, in the industry who are working on policy are trying to to do. It might be helpful to know that American fashion labeling law has not been updated since 1958. And prior to that, I believe you said it was in the 30s that it was it was updated. Labels were created with industrialization, right? People wanted to know that their products were being made in the U.S. They wanted to know um, that their textiles weren't being diluted with cheaper fibers. And they wanted to know how to care for their products. Um, and so a lot of that has parallels to Similar things that we'd like to understand more about our garments now. Um, how much recycled content is actually in 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 the the item? Is there any? And you propose even going uh, further than the country of origin, but actually the factory of origin or final construction of of the fabric. How did you discover this particular policy area and uh, and decide to focus on this? Well, you know, 
other than there constantly being a source of discomfort for me in my clothing over the years, there was also like a fear of God in, in removing labels. I don't know if you, any of you noticed that when you were younger, but I would always see these threats of imprisonment if the, if the label was removed prior to a certain point in the, you know, in the commerce <laughs> like on stream. Pillows. Yeah, you remember exactly. that on mattresses. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Mattresses. <laughs> really, I think it, my curiosity about it that prompted this deep dive really started um, when I started noticing that the single label turned into a tome that I needed a cipher and like a, a thesaurus and, and a translation <laughs> service to decipher. I felt like I had a novel attached to the side of my clothing. Yeah. And then also during the pandemic. A scratchy one. Exactly. A scratchy so scratchy. novel. Exactly. You got to yeah. cut it out. <laughs> risk imprisonment. (laughs) Exactly. And then, you know, during the pandemic, so much of retail shifted from brick and mortar to online. And when I did do some shopping, I noticed that I was unable to discern the same type of information from a company's website that I was by looking at this tome of a label. You know, there, and then I dove into it and realized that there are no regulations as to what brands have to disclose on their website. And I noticed that the country of origin, which normally had an actual country associated, was merely listed as imported. And it got me thinking about, you know, the who, what, where, when, why, and how about you know, why they are the way they are, why are they located where they're supposed to be, and how did it come about that we're supposed to identify these four pieces of information. Um, and so that is really what prompted my investigation into this area. The contents of these labels, the the laws haven't been updated in in years and years and years, but why do you believe it's been so long that this has been focused on from a policy perspective? I think, you know, it's always important to consider the legislative intent behind things, and you touched, both you and Christina touched on this briefly, but, you know... As the labeling laws became more prolific and and as they were codified and adopted and, you know, and finally in like the late 1950s, you have to think about what was going on in history. At that point, World War II had just occurred. There was still a lot of xenophobia. People wanted to know where their products were being made. And as you as you said, industrialization had a huge role in, in the textile industry. And at that point, the majority of the textile and garment industry was actually domestic. There was a very prolific uh, man- garment manufacturing uh, presence in the U.S., and it, comp- it comprised a huge part of the United States GDP um, and a significant portion of their exports. Um, and so I think, sort of taking your your question a step further, I think the reason that it hasn't garnered the same kind of attention is twofold. One, there's more pressing issues. And, you know, when you have congressmen and senators that are behoven to their constituents and, you know, not only do they seem like frivolous issues, but there's no longer the same manufacturing presence and garment and textile presence that there is there there used to be. And so a lot less attention, I think, in Congress is going to these sorts of issues. You know, the other thing is that Fashion is moving really fast. Um, you know, offshoring really, really, you know, uh, became what it is, and globalization really became so prolific with the advent of the internet. And as and and also NAFTA, the the you know adoption of NAFTA during the Clinton administration, and where it became a lot less expensive to manufacture abroad. And so, all of those things, the kind of created the perfect storm in terms of how kind of how we got where we are, but also why the laws haven't kept pace. And let's be honest, 
as, as important as law is, it is always the last thing to change. It is always trying to keep pace with, you know, advancements in technology and just the pace of life these days, especially with how the world works um, in a digital world. So, you know, and I think finally, really, it's it's that we don't ask why enough. You know, one of the things that I've really learned in this industry, and when I say industry, I mean fashion law, is the really the need to always be curious. It's the need to think critically and ask questions. And again, the reason that a lot of these laws were created was to really protect consumers and to give them information so that they could make really grounded, informative decisions. And if we look at the problems we're facing now, they might be more complicated and they might you know, be more existential as they were than they were perhaps previously, but they really go to the heart of the same issue, which is that consumers deserve to be informed. And so when I thought about how we could tackle the fashion industry problems and and really the issue of transparency, I, I kind of looked back before we could look forward because I think you need to understand what exists in order to understand how to fix it. You know, we should talk for, maybe for a second about specifically what your proposal is because what you're arguing is that we need to amend the Textile Product Act, which is from 1959, um, to require brands to disclose the factory name and address where the products were made, make labels in their contents digitally available on e-commerce sites. So if I go to neimanmarcus.com and look at a Prada shirt... I want I should be able to see the label for that shirt on there on on neimanmarcus.com because right now it's it's important to note that on e-commerce you you have no you can have no idea what the contents of the garment are made of how to Zero. care for it's it wild no wild west out there and to impose penalties for failures to comply so it's three things where was it made let's see it on the e-commerce site and there's penalties if you don't comply when i was reading that i thought well we pretty well have that for the food industry. We have a lot of disclosures. And if I go onto a, a, a website to buy my groceries, they usually have a photograph of the label on the product so that I can see what the content is. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about when you're saying we have a framework? In part, I think, you know, just as you noted, the food industry is highly regulated. Why? Because things are ingestible. Mm. And that has a chemical, among other effects, on our bodies. But yeah. if you think about the fashion industry, well, most people would say, oh, it's just on your skin. What about the field workers that have inhaled the pesticides from the field as they pick the cotton? What about the... Um, garment workers in the factories where there is poor ventilation, locked windows, locked doors, no breaks. You know, what about the dust that they're inhaling? What about the way we have ergonomics set up in our in our chairs and our desks in everyday life? They are practically chained to what I'm sure are very uncomfortable chairs and have all sorts of health issues emanating from that. And I think it's somewhat of an uphill battle because, again, I don't think there is a lot of curiosity about what goes on behind what we dawn on our bodies on every day. So let me ask you this. Let's say in a perfect world, we we got this passed. What, what would you do next? What would follow? I think that's a great question. And, you know, I would love to have a crystal ball and be able to predict all of this. But I think anytime you have more information, you have 
both more knowledge and empowerment, but you also have more responsibility. There's a lot of companies that have ESG policies where they talk the talk and they don't walk the walk. And that is very clear in papers like the Fashion Revolutions report, uh, their transparency report every year, where if you actually go and compare what they have uh, reported on in terms of what these companies disclose versus what their ESG policies reflect or state, you will find a huge, huge disparity. And so I think it could really hold corporations and brands' feet to the fire in that regard. And just from a, you know, ecological and climate, you know, protective standpoint, I think it could also really help in in reducing returns. If there's more information, consumers are going to have more um, inf- make more informative decisions. And frankly, it it could really bear on whether they choose to buy or return a particular garment. Um, it may cause them to think twice before they even shop there. That aside, you know, I think I think part of the reason why this proposal has teeth is because it it really doesn't ask the industry or brands to do more than they're already doing. It just asks them to keep pace with the way that the fashion industry is moving. And that is, we're not in a factory down the road where you have a particular person who's in charge of overseeing what transpires on a daily basis on the floor of that factory. You now have a factory overseas that very highly likely subcontracts out. Then you have a middleman who works with that subcontractor who further subcontracts out. Why? Because they can't meet the demands of the overproduction. And so if you are holding companies' feet to the fire and demanding that they provide the factual information, which, again, you can't compel companies to speak. They have, you know, commercial speech protection under the Constitution. But if you require them to provide a bit more detail, I think a lot of these, uh, you know, need for transparency and accountability flow from that. Again, those two segments came from our sustainable fashion podcast, Hot Buttons. If you are into supply chains, apparel, and the inner workings of how clothing moves around the world, go check that podcast out. It's a fascinating subject. Again, Hot Buttons. And this is The Carbon Copy. We are a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. Sean Marquand mixed this show. Original music came from Sean Marquand, Echo Finch, and Blue Dot Sessions. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a wide range of sectors. Advanced energy, food and agriculture, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. Go check out their portfolio. And go give us a rating and review on Apple or Spotify. Thank you so much for sending your thoughts on social media, for helping us out, and for sending a link to a friend or colleague. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy. We will catch you next week. Mm-hmm.